I'm going to invite you to Luke chapter 19. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to come a little heavy in scripture today because of the significance of what this represents uh, to us. This is Palm Sunday leading into uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. This is the anthem of our church. And if you don't celebrate today, no one else will, right? This, this is where we stake our banners in the ground and, and we just lift our flags in, in celebration for what God has done for us. This day is significant for our uh, faith. And your trust in that is, is, is highly significant when you consider the message of which God's community stands on. Uh, you think about what we proclaim as followers of Jesus. The story, apart from the Spirit of God working in our life, is a bit ridiculous. I mean, you follow a man based on his death, burial, and resurrection, the proclamation that he himself is God, capable of setting you free and promising you all of eternity in him. Not, not only is, is it a little bit crazy apart from the Spirit of God working in our lives and God revealing this, this to us in Scripture as it's unfolded, um, it's also highly offensive. <laughs> you think of what Jesus said in, in, his, in his message. He, he told us that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And by very nature of his message and his presence, he eliminates all other uh, statements of truth and faith in this world by solidifying it in his identity. So what you believe about Jesus is very important. And today, what I want to focus on, because today is Volunteer Sunday as it relates to Palm Sunday, I want to I highlight the significance of Palm Sunday and sort of end with the idea or flavor of why this should matter to you in the way you live your life. When you think about this day, this, this day was defined by a moment in history that created a movement. And so it's not a, a moment that we didn't see foreshadowed. It was prophesied about, it was declared starting from Genesis chapter 3 through all of Scripture, but it solidified itself in this one singular act of which Jesus was crucified for our sins. And in this moment, it created a movement, meaning God established his people built on the proclamation of his message, which we call the gospel. It is a, it is a proclamation. And so today I want to talk about how that moment created a movement of which we are a part of. And next week is Easter, so you know what that's going to be related to, right? But I want to talk about the specifics of that, that moment next week. And not only talk about it intellectually, which I think it's important. Why would you believe that? What, on what basis would you believe that? And then let that, that moment also affect our hearts in, in worship. So thinking about it today, Palm Sunday, leading up to this moment that creates a movement in our lives. Luke chapter 19 starts uh, the events of of Palm Sunday. It's also in Matthew 21, but we're going to read it from from Luke 19. It says to us, when Jesus approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. Jesus, in these moments going into Jerusalem, he's really demonstrating a couple aspects to the nature and character of his identity as he ascends into the city one final time. 
Uh, writing on the colt was prophesied, or writing on the back of a donkey was prophesied in, in Zechariah 9 9 that when their Messiah or their king would come, he would come on the back of, of a donkey in an attitude of humbleness, riding into the city. But, but at the same time, the idea of a donkey uh, has precedent in the history of Israel. Uh, when you ride on a particular animal during the, the days of Jesus, previous to this, that animal often symbolized motive. Meaning if you are somebody about to prepare for battle, going into war, I can tell you the animal that you probably don't want to be on to be considered valiant as a warrior would be a donkey, right? You want to ride a horse (laughs) and not just any horse, the biggest stinking horse that snorts so loud it scares everyone else around you, right? The horse is like the army tank of this time. And when you read in scripture in Revelation, when Jesus returns, he returns on the back of a horse in a robe dipped in blood with a sword and king of kings, lord of lords tattooed on his leg. I mean, that is authority. But when he comes into Jerusalem for the last time, he doesn't come on horse. He comes on donkey. Why? When you read the history of the donkey, it was also an animal in which noble people would ride upon an animal which kings of Israel had been upon. The donkey was a symbol of peace and prosperity. It's what you used within the context of your community when you were plowing the land, when things were still, when the day-to-day of life was being taken care of. It's also what a king would ride upon before his people as he presented himself to his people as, as a leader of peace, coming to serve. It's what King Solomon wrote upon in 1 Kings chapter 1 when he was first brought before the people of Israel as their king. And in this story, Jesus is not only fulfilling prophecy as the identification of the Messiah in Zechariah 9.9, he's carrying with it the demeanor of what he presents to the people. He is a king coming in peace. And the deliverance of his position in Israel would ultimately lead him to the cross, which would culminate in the establishment of peace in our relationship with God. Jesus was the identity of Shalom. One coming to offer himself for our sin. A beautiful moment as he ascends into Jerusalem on the back of this donkey. And you see, you see within the context of these passages of scripture that this moment, it builds in, in the idea of these people. You think it, 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 what's happening in Israel right now, people are descending on Jerusalem. This is the Passover. This is where families gathered together and they brought a lamb into the temple and blood would literally flow like rivers out as they would make the sacrifice for their sins, ultimately looking for the one lamb that would come as the, as the, the savior and the sacrifice for all sin. And now these people making this pilgrimage into this city, seeing this Messiah fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 on the back of a donkey. And then the passage goes on and says this, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road as if he is royalty. And as soon as they, as he was approaching near the descent on the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. And they say this shouting, blessed is the king who's coming in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In the book of of, of Matthew in in chapter 21, verse nine, it throws this word Hosanna in front of it, which means salvation now. An interesting thought, this moment. 
As Jesus goes into Jerusalem, why is it the entire crowd can in one moment know to sing this section? Why, why this phrase? How, all, how do they orchestrate this together unprepared, not knowing Jesus was necessarily descending into Jerusalem? But as he comes into Jerusalem, they're praising God with this phrase. How did the crowd know? Well, for them, this wasn't an unfamiliar passage. To them, this, this was the section of the Bible of which they would chant during this period of life. So the Jews have this section in the Psalms. It's called the Hillel. It starts in Psalm 113 and goes to Psalm 118. And there are particular festivals. There are three pilgrimage festivals that they have. One is, one is this Passover celebration. And when, when they go to Jerusalem to celebrate this moment, they sing Psalm 113 to 118. And if you were to look at that section of scripture, maybe even think about reading it this week, you can see that this this section of scripture, it was written out of the heartbeat of the Passover celebration. When you look at what's happening to God's people in Egypt as slaves, God setting them free miraculously, God giving them an identity in him and a land to belong to him and saying to them, through you all nations would be blessed. When you read Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, you can see in your mind, you can just picture it's a journey of Israel from slave to freedom in God. And they're singing these praises during this festival of Passover because they connect their identity of who they are and what God has done. But the beauty of those psalms in Psalm 118, as you get to the conclusion of that psalm, the end of that psalm also looks forward to a Messiah, one who would set them free. In verse uh, Psalm 118 and verse 26 He gives this quote, and that's how this group knows. Jesus is the Messiah. He's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. He's coming on the back of a donkey as a king who wants to establish peace. The Psalms that we're singing walking into Jerusalem talk about this. And in unison, they burst out in the celebration of this word for this moment because the Messiah has finally arrived. You just imagine being a person in this moment, seeing all of this take place, how God has culminated and orchestrated this throughout history. And they are living in that moment in which the Messiah would come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us now. The response of some of the religious leaders are interesting. It says in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They they know, the Jewish people know, they're a monotheistic religious community, meaning they only worship and believe in one God, and yet they're witnessing this one receiving the praise of people. Rebuke them. Isaiah 43 to 44, the culmination of God being one God, only one God ever existing, all that will ever exist is one God, is told clearly within those passages, no doubt fresh on their mind, looking at this praise Jesus is receiving. It even says within Isaiah 43 and 44 that God's glory he will give to no other. And then Jesus gives this response. Jesus answered, I I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And the Pharisees who rejected Jesus were seeing the ramifications. What's interesting is what Jesus says in response to them. He just doesn't make up a phrase. He actually quotes scripture. He quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 11. And in that chapter, God is condemning the people that stand against him, the nations that stand against him and saying for his people, he will set them free. And now he's actually using this passage, talking to his own people as if it's condemnation for their rejection of him. And so they see the ramifications. Judgment. 
And they see the crowd building and they don't want to stand against. And then look at this, verse 41. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and look, he wept over it. Saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for, look, peace. I'm a king coming in peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus comes for Jerusalem. He comes to his people. And they reject. Jesus was on a mission of peace. Peace in our relationship with God. And the Jews missed it. But you know what's interesting in this story? Within the same chapter, Jesus tried to explain this to them. In fact, if you backed up to verse 11 in chapter 19, it says this, while, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. And listen to the reason why. Because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. So Jesus from this point on starts to tell a story. He starts to tell about someone who establishes something, leaves, and wants to come back. And what Jesus is communicating to them is they have this idea of what the Messiah is going to do. And in their mind, what the Messiah is, is one who's going to set up a physical rule and reign at that moment and crush everyone that stands against his people. But Peter, in, in his book, in 1 Peter, writes a, a beautiful description of this. He says to, he says to us in the story, he says, you know, God, God is not, uh, not fulfilling his promises to you, but God is long-suffering, not willing any should perish, but all come to repentance. And what Peter's acknowledging is that in the Old Testament, they have these prophecies, the coming of the Messiah, and they're trying to look at it, figure out how the Messiah is going to play all of this out, that he will indeed establish his kingdom. He will rule. He will bring back shalom, the peace that was lost because of sin. He will do that. But how? They couldn't see it clearly. And Jesus is trying to say to his people that the first thing that he wants to establish peace with is not necessarily the world, but peace with you. And what Peter says in the story, because of that, he's saying, listen, God's not delaying in his promises, but rather he's long-suffering, not willing that you should perish, but everyone should come to repentance. And what Peter is saying to us is if God came back to establish his kingdom right now, it's important for us to understand that God is holy. And we're not. God is perfect. And we're not. Because God is good, and God is just, and God is perfect, God will judge those things. And in the judgment of those things, if he were to establish his kingdom now, it would eliminate anything that stands against him in sinfulness, including us. And so what Peter is saying is that God is long-suffering, not willing any should perish, but all come to repentance. That what, the reason God's kingdom is being spread out in the way that Jesus is playing this out for us is to give us opportunity and the grace that's been delivered on this cross for us to come to him as king of kings and lord of lords and experience a relationship with our God. This wasn't the only time that Jesus tried to reiterate this thought to his people. In fact, when you read in the book of Matthew, Jesus is talking in this passage to John the Baptist. You know, the one that introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in, in Matthew chapter 11, John finds himself in prison. And he's looking at the Messiah and he knows what the Jewish mentality is about the Messiah. And he's trying to figure out how, how does Jesus fit into this? Like, he's supposed to come. He's supposed to set up his kingdom. I'm not supposed to be in jail anymore. And so it says this in verse 2, when John sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? 
Jesus replied. Jesus, in this passage, he quotes scripture. He says, report to John. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. John quotes a section of scripture or excuse me, Jesus quotes a section of scripture from John. He, he quotes Isaiah uh, chapter 35, verses 3 to 6, and he quotes again Isaiah chapter 61, the same phrases in both chapters. And both of those chapters are an identification of what the Messiah would fulfill. And so he's saying to John, John, you may not figure it all out, but, but what I want you to understand is I am living out the role of Messiah. And you know, one of the interesting things during the time of John and Jesus is that people had, had appeared in history and declared themselves to be the Messiah. They did it before Jesus. They did it after Jesus. And what the Jews did is they looked through some of the prophecies of what the Messiah would fulfill. And they came up with three identifying markers that if if someone would show up and do these things, they knew that the evidence of the Messiah was on him, that he would be the Messiah. And and for the Messiah, they were looking for three things. They wanted him to be able to, to heal a leper, to give sight to the blind, and to cast out demons. In fact, if you were to read through the Old Testament, no, no doubt you're probably familiar with stories of leprosy being cured. But you know one of the interesting things that if you go through Scripture and you read about leprosy being cured, that no Jew, after the law was given, ever received a cure from leprosy. Miriam was cured from leprosy before the law was delivered. Naaman, who was a Gentile, was cured from leprosy but no Jew had ever experienced a miracle. And apart from that, that's all the leprosy cures that happened in, in, in the time of Israel's history. And so they're looking. They're waiting for that Messiah to deliver those promises. And so when, when Jesus tells John his identity, he quotes those passages of Scripture of which he fulfills, but not only those passages of Scripture, he quotes what the Jews are waiting for in the coming of the Messiah. And so Jesus is helping them to recognize the, the filling of the, the kingdom in, in his identity. When you read in the, in the Old Testament, the Jews got to this place where they started to think, well, God's given us the law, and if we just live the law, then God would find us acceptable. But the only, the only problem with that thinking is the law was never given to us uh, to give us the freedom for deliverance. The law was only given to us for our condemnation. And there's no mistaking it that when you read in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus, in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, gives the Sermon on the Mount. This is the first act Jesus carries out in the preaching of his kingdom. Remember, Jesus was baptized. Jesus went into the wilderness. Jesus comes out of the wilderness. And in Matthew 5, finally sits with his people and delivers the Sermon on the Mount about what his kingdom is. And the first thing Jesus starts to talk about is the blessedness of those that are poor in spirit. And then he starts to converse over the law because the idea and the mentality of the people was the law sets you free. But Jesus went on and he said this, You've heard it said, you shall not kill. But I say, he who has anger in his heart is murdered already. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say, he who has lusted in his heart has committed adultery already. You've heard it said, you shall not steal. But he who has coveted in his heart is stolen already. And what Jesus is saying is, look, the law doesn't prove that you're right. What needs addressed isn't your behavior. It's your heart. You can't change your heart. 
It condemns all of us. And there is no mistake that after Jesus shares that message as the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7, that the first act Jesus does in leaving that mount in chapter 8, he comes down from the hill and he heals a leper. Why? It's the declaration of the coming of the Messiah in both word and act. His freedom, the peace, (laughs) the peace is being made known in our lives and this moment creates a movement. And I think within the context of, of this thought that it's Peter reflecting on these words in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at this. When, when Peter starts to think about his own position in Jesus and how, how that position creates movement, Peter starts to reflect, I think, back on Luke chapter 19. The events of those days. And look what he says. He says, for in the scriptures it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion. A chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Peter's identity is really important here. Because he's saying in this verse, um, a cornerstone is essential to the building of any, any structure. In Peter's day, if you wanted to build a building, you would pick the most precious, level, perfect stone to start that building, that structure. Because that stone would set the precedent for how that building was navigated. And if that stone was off, everything else was off. And so that cornerstone became the foundation to everything you wanted to build on. And Peter's thinking about all that Jesus has done. In fact, if you backed up just one or, one or two verses from here, Peter is saying that we're all living stones being built up into a spiritual house of which Jesus himself is the cornerstone. So Peter's taking all of the picture in this story of the Old Testament and saying it's culminated in God's people because of what Jesus has done as the cornerstone. And then he goes on in verse 7. Listen to this. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But then he goes on again in our identity in Jesus. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light or wonderful light. And what he's saying in this verse is pictures of the Old Testament. Priest and temple and nation as God's people and royalty belonging to a king. All of that identity now is on you because of what Jesus has done. But in this story, Peter's really showing two positions. Verse 6, belong to Jesus. Verse 7, rejecting Jesus. And when Peter thinks about the rejection of Jesus, look at the psalm he quotes. The Hallel. Psalm 113 to 118, the psalm of celebration that they would sing for the Passover. Interesting about the same psalm, the very same psalm that the Jews shouted in celebration over Jesus, verse 26. Just a few verses previous to that acknowledges that he's also going to be rejected. And what Peter is doing in this story is he's reflecting on how that identity should shape our life and what we become and how in recognizing the identity of the Messiah, how it sets us free in him. But there's two sides to this coin. In embracing him and rejecting him, there's only two positions in this life. But in rejecting him, the beautiful picture that's established. And when Peter describes it, he does it in Jewish language. You know, I think Paul does the same thing. In more of a Gentile specific way of thinking. He, he writes it in 2 Corinthians 5. 
He says for us in, in verse 17, this is what we become. In this moment, creates a movement. And look, his concluding thought here, therefore, he says this twice because there's two concluding thoughts we want from this passage, but therefore, if anyone is in Christ, look, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. What Paul is saying about what Jesus has done here is the idea of addressing the heart. This, this word new creature literally means metamorphosis, where you become a beautiful butterfly. Right? You go into the cocoon, a nasty-looking caterpillar, <laughs> and you come out beauty. I want to tell you, that beauty isn't because of what you do. It's because of who Jesus is. When God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ on you. When Jesus addressed the Sermon on the Mount because people missed the intentions and purpose of the law, his identification was the heart. Your heart needs a place to become new. Your heart needs peace. It's in rebellion against God. The king has come on the back of a donkey. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us now. And therefore, he says, if anyone is in Christ, metamorphosis. And then he explains it. He goes further in the explanation, verse 18. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed us the word of reconciliation. And then from that moment for us that created the movement, he defines it this way. Therefore, again, therefore, because of what God has done in the depths of your soul, therefore, in the peace he has established, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God is not, uh, not willing to, or not wanting to not leave his, his promises unfulfilled, but he's long suffering to you, not willing any should perish, but all come to repentance. We beg you, reconciliation. We become ambassadors. Through the moment comes the movement, ambassadors. It's saying to us, because of the goodness of who God is, when, when life cuts me, I want to bleed Jesus. When you think about the identity of an ambassador representing this world today, an ambassador doesn't really represent a nation. An ambassador represents the agenda of a king. And he goes into a country and the declaration of what the king desires to proclaim. Saying in the experience of our life, wherever we are, we represent or we bleed Jesus. And so let me just ask you, maybe in a more specific way, we think about this movement. What does it look like to be an ambassador? And this is Volunteer Sunday. <laughs> We'll have a meal at one o'clock today to meet. And when you think about how we represent Jesus, what does it look like to be an ambassador for this movement? When you consider what God has done, he created his church for a purpose. Like, you know, if you, coming to church on Sundays is, is sort of like a ritual thing in our culture. It's a fading ritual, but 
If you're here on Sunday because you're supposed to be here on Sunday, I want to welcome you. But I want you to know that that's not why we assemble, right? We don't come to church together or we're not the church together on Sunday because, because you're supposed to gather on Sunday. We, we gather together as God's community because God has a purpose for us. In fact, he, he, he laid into that purpose in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. At the end of Matthew, he, he tells us all authority has been given to, to him, to Jesus. And they're going to all the nations and make disciples. We call that the great commission, the commission of God to his people. And so we say this, our purpose, our mission is the great commission. And our commission out of the great commission is a response to the need. God created his people for this movement because there is a need for you in this world. And what is that need? It's, the, it's sin, if we think about it in the negative side, sin presented in the gospel. Sin is the problem, the gospel is the solution. That proclamation is the solution, right? And so the church exists to get the proclamation of peace that's at the destruction of sin. That's the need. When you live in various places of this world, I think what we come to realize is that need is always there. It's, it's, it's always sin. But depending on where you live in the world, the flavor might be a little different. I mean, the way I do ministry in Utah might look a little different than the way I might do it in any other state or maybe any other country in this world. Because the way that sin rears its head and the need in which it presents for the gospel might be different. And, but the beauty of that is it, it gives me a platform to understand how to preach the gospel. That's why, that's why Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jew, I became the Jews. To those without the law, I became like those without the law. He identified with the people group that he was with so he could leverage the news of the gospel in their lives so they could understand how Jesus came to deliver them. It's sort of like this. I, I don't go to a elementary school teaching kids how to have a godly 401k. Right? And I don't go to a retirement facility teaching people in, in that facility how to raise young children. It makes no sense in context as it relates to God. I mean, it's all important, but context matters. And so when we look at need within our area, we, we have particular ways in which we share this gospel and the purpose for which we created, which gives us mission, right? So you see the purpose of our existence, but we can refine the way we live out that mission. And so what we say here as a church community, if I just think about the need, I think about the solution of the gospel, and I could just consider Utah. You might be interested to know that Harvard Encyclopedia of Ethnic Groups labels Utah as different than anywhere else in America. Like America, in their encyclopedia at least, is all the same, and then Utah, it's different. <laughs> but it also says to us, hey, there's particular ways you can speak into people's lives. And you know, I've lived in several different states in my life, but, and I love Utah. Um, I love the mountains, I tell people, um, you know, it seems like there's two kinds of people in this world. There's beach people and there's mountain people. I'm a mountain person. I love the ocean. I hate the beach. I hate the beach because when I lived there, sand got everywhere on me in my car. Couldn't stand it. So, and then seagulls were just dive bombs waiting to happen there. But I'm not a, I'm not a beach person. I, I'm a mountain person. I tell people like my, my view from my window is a postcard every day and you just live in jealousy. That's how, that's how Utah is. It, but, but you know, one of the things I've noticed about Utah is that it can become a a very lonely place. Um, it doesn't need to be. I think the gospel helps us find freedom in that. But Utah can be an isolated place. And, and there's several reasons for that. We see 
um, prescription drug abuse and suicide's high here. And it affects, I know it f- affects us personally as God's community, those things. And, and, and we get isolated. And we, what do we do with those things we wrestle with in life? Like Everywhere in the world, there's religion presented everywhere in the world. And, and I want you to know, everywhere that religion is presented, it's always the same flavor. It's just got a different name. And what I mean is religion is about performance, right? You live up to the standard and hopefully God loves you. But the problem is you never know if God really accepts you or loves you. And when you got sin, what do you do with it? When you know your heart needs transformed, how do you respond? Religion does two things to people. It takes you to pride or despair. And when it takes you to despair, it makes you feel lonely. And honestly, if you become proud, you elevate yourself above people. And again, you're off on your own. But the gospel gives us a place to address the loneliness. You think of what Jesus says in 2 Corinthians 5. God wants to transform you. God wants you to belong. God wants to make you new. God's got a place for sin. He died for it that you could be a part with him. You belong to him. And so as a church family, this is what we say because of this passage and some other passages in scripture I'll share with you, but we say this very plainly. Our mission is, Our mission is for everyone to experience, that was crazy, (laughs) everyone to experience, really pay attention to this now. (laughs) We want everyone to experience a transforming relationship in Christ that transforms their relationship with others. Metamorphosis. We want you to be a beautiful butterfly. (laughs) That's what Jesus' mission is about. And and if I just throw another verse in there, the two greatest commands, Jesus says, love God, love others. God created you for relationship. Not loneliness. The gospel's about relationship, not religion. Jesus died for you that you could belong to him. Jesus wants you in relationship to him. That's why he transforms your heart so that you can experience shalom in him for all of eternity. And so what does it look like for us to be an ambassador? There's purpose for the church. There's need. There's mission. And if I could just, just build on that for a moment, there's, there's a way, I think, as a church that we, we just live that out. Now, I'll tell you this. There is truth and there is method, right? Truth is truth, regardless if you believe it or not. Marry truth. Method is a tool. Okay, method changes over time. And so if you think about retirement home, young kids, like there's a way that you approach and how you might talk about Jesus depending on the environment you're in. Methods change. And so as our church, we're looking for the way God's moving in this world and how we can be a part of it. But I think there's certain principles. And if I, if I go on the basis of cornerstone, I would say if you're into construction, maybe some plumb lines, this idea that when we build on this cornerstone, there are these certain lines that should just emanate from us in the way that we live as ambassadors in this world. Let me just give you some of them. There's, I don't know how many of them. One, two, three, four, five, more than five, okay? There, we should be gospel-driven. What I mean, the gospel is the proclamation that sets us free. Not religion, gospel. Not performance on our part, what Jesus has done. And this is why it's important to be gospel-driven. The gospel isn't something I believed in at one point in my life and Jesus saved me. It's something I live in every day. Every day day, my identity should be shaped in Jesus. Every day, Jesus's righteousness washes over my past failures. Every day, God is calling me into something new in him and to live in light of that message that sets me free. The gospel isn't something that just happened in my life. It's something we walk in as a community every day. 
Second is this, in light of the gospel, we speak the truth in love. We understand, and I hope as a church, that this isn't the first time you've heard me say this, but we speak the truth in love. That's Ephesians 4.15, a direct quote. But what, what, we, what we do as a church is we understand that truth is a catalyst for change, that, that, that truth is the place where God meets us to help us understand who he is and his correct identity. Truth is the catalyst for change, but truth is not a club to beat people up with. Truth is a club to serve others with. Truth is not about proving I'm right and you're wrong. Truth is a place that we should all seek transparently for God's identity to be written in us. It's, it's not about, truth is not about intellect and information and proving that you know a lot. Truth is not about information. We seek it for transformation. God, how does this apply to my life? So we speak the truth in love. We, we become all things to all people. Meaning we say this, people are not the enemy. Ephesians 6 tells us in, in verse 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual forces of darkness. We, we want to become all things to all people. It means, means we're servant postured. It means we recognize the truth is hard enough in itself. The truth embraces where we conflict with God. And we, we know that the truth becomes offensive, especially when we live contrary to that. And so because we want to meet all, become all things to all people, we want to make it hard for people to hate us. We want to love them so deeply that the only offense they find is in the truth. But we want them to know deeply that God loves them. And we love them too. We want to meet people where they are and love them as Jesus loves them. Ministry exists for people. When we gather together on Sunday, we don't gather to accomplish tasks. Like, God doesn't need you. As a pastor, I find that incredibly freeing, but let me just tell you, when we get here on Sunday, it's not about just accomplishing a task. God doesn't need you to accomplish a task. He can, make some, he can design someone else out of thin air to do that. But you know, the beauty of, of walking in this is that you get to learn and grow as you serve God too, but, but when ministry exists, you're on a journey learning about your relationship with God and what God calls us to is not to accomplish tasks, but rather ministry exists to reach hearts. People, people aren't the problem. They're the calling. People are the mission. And when you read this in scripture, this, there's this word that scripture uses. It's called hospitality. And it is huge in the, Old Test, in the New Testament as it relates to the unbeliever. In fact, if you read in, in Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, it talks about the qualifications of church leaders, of elders. And it says one of the qualifications is hospitality. And when it defines that word, it defines hospitality in the treatment of people that don't know Jesus. How do you love on people that don't know Christ? How do you serve people that might be contrary to your belief? Meet people where they are. Become all things to all people. Love them as Christ would love them. And next is this, we're outward focused. Meaning Jesus told a parable about a hundred sheep. He said this, there's 99. And when one of them's lost, he leaves the 99 behind and goes after the one. God cares about the one. And so we want to be outward focused. When we create, create ministry as a church, it's good to minister to one another, but we don't want to become ingrown. We want to create ministry. We want to think outwardly. And as a church during the summertime, we do evangelistic outreach. We do a lot more in our community. We're there. And, you know, one of the joys is sometimes we do it and we see people come to church. That's great. 
But can I tell you, the number one driving force behind it isn't necessarily to get people in the church, but to get the church in the community. To be a living example of what it means to be a light outside of these walls. To love people where they're at. And so we want to be outward thinking. And and next we want to be community-centered. Discipleship happens in community. Growth in Christ happens in community. And Utah is a lonely place. And when we can create community and pour into one another's lives and serving one another, it's beautiful. We say this a lot, but at church on Sunday, when you sit in rows, it's difficult to use your gifts. I think it's important to have formal teaching, to learn and let it impact our hearts. Beautiful thing, honoring God's word. But at the same time, the entire time you hear this, what do you do with it? It's not until you bother getting in a circle in any context with God's people that you're able to make the application, right? Which is why we encourage small groups. Using your gifts to bless one another's life and growing in community together. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does. We want to be, only two more, by the way. We want to be either God-dependent or spirit-led. And what that means is we don't want to do anything on our own strength. Um... I said this already to us, but um, God doesn't need me, right? But the beauty is, is he still works through me. Not because he needed me to be in a particular situation, but I'm learning about my relationship with God as I'm serving people. And let me give you an example. Bible tells us in Galatians chapter five, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. It says against such things, there isn't even a law. That's what God's spirit wants to do in me. And when I'm left on an island to myself, I would like you guys to know I'm the most perfect human being on planet earth. I mean, I'm the most loving person when I'm by myself. I'm the most patient person when I'm by myself. All the fruit of the spirit got them all. Got them covered, man. But when I get with people, (laughs) I I, I tend to find out that sometimes my love might have restriction. And sometimes my patience might meet an end. It's like this. Um, maybe when you were single before you got married, you, you probably thought you were God's gift to whoever it was that you were about to get married to. And then when you got under the roof and you were with one another 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you started to realize, man, there's maybe not quite as much patience or love here as I had before when I was single. And you looked at them and you're like, what's wrong with you? Cause you know what I was like before this happened. I was the most perfect human being that ever lived, right? It's when you get with people that you realize where your failures are. Under what context is God's people ever told to stop loving? Stop being patient? Under what context? You can blame whoever you want. I mean, Adam and Eve started that way. But the truth is, it's teaching you something about your own relationship with God and where it's weak. Now, the answer to that isn't to be, to be more patient. The answer to that is to be more spirit-led. And what I mean is surrendering yourself to God. God, how can you work here? My attitude stinks. Their attitude might stink too, and I may use that as an excuse. But Jesus, I know you want your light to shine through me. So we want to be spirit-led. And the last is this. We want to be equipping and reproducing. Now, I will tell you as a pastor, this is probably one of the more challenging spots for me. Not because I don't want to live it, but because Utah is growing so much that we're getting a lot of people here in and out for jobs, right? And this is crazy for me. I think this is only a season of ministry, but because Lehigh is growing so fast, our church has a turnover rate of every three years. Every three years, we've got a new congregation. Now, some of you might have been here longer than that, 
But a third of you, statistically, over the last three years, a third of our church moved somewhere. I mean, it's not like you don't, you don't hate us and you go down the street. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm literally like you're like 100 miles or more away. Like that's because of what's happening in our culture. It's really weird. And so when you're about equipping and reproducing people, it's hard to pour in, pour in a, a certain uh, culture that you want to create in the church. And so stop doing that. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, if you're here, I'm thankful that we have time to invest in you. But at the same time, it's, it's kind of a difficult spot where if I tell you where I wrestle the most, it's right here. Because here's what I understand as a pastor. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, it says this, God gave pastors for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And what that means is, God's not going to judge me on how well I do ministry. God's going to judge me on how I help others do the work of the ministry. This isn't a one-man show. You know, one of the things I love about ABC is... um, I tell you guys this, that I would have, when I think about ministry, I would have been the last guy up on a stage. Like I, I was the kid that went to school that took the F's because they didn't want to give the oral book report. Like, no, no, thank you. I don't want to do that ever. Right. This is the most fearful spot you could have ever told me that I would be. And, and, and I don't feel like when it comes to this, I don't feel like I got it all together. I don't feel like the most gifted human being, but here's what I do feel like. I feel like I get to watch some of the most talented, gifted people serving Jesus. And I love the position God's given me to do that. I love to watch what God does through his community. And I just happen to be some, some dude. <laughs> I don't want to undermine the position of, of leadership, but, but I love where I'm at and, and just being able to see what God wants to do in you. And so let me just say it like this for us. I, I think the best ministry ideas are in the congregation. The ble- best place to start ministry is here. And we're not necessarily looking to, to just become ingrown, but go create ministry. Go find places to let God's light shine in you in this world. Uh, the question for us isn't no longer if you're called, but where and how. Remember, what does it mean to be an ambassador? All of us have that calling and to, to live sufficiently in Christ and give extravagantly with our lives. The, the church isn't just this audience on Sunday. It's a community on mission. It's better described as an army than just a, a people that just watch something. This is God's plan A. Our mission is the great commission. This event was intended to create a movement. If you don't celebrate, no one else will. I love the beauty of this movement because it brings us to our place to recognize our need for Jesus. Like if you don't realize you're sinful, you're not going to see your need for Jesus, right? But God doesn't want you to sit there. God's calling you to something new and transformational in him where his identity is over your life. He forgives the depth of your soul to be reconciled to him. You can't do it in law. And when you see that, when you see that transformation take place, the, the, the place within your heart with that grace that makes this difference in your life, it's a place of rejoicing. It's a place of celebrating. It's a place not just singing a halal, but your life becomes a halal. What God has done. This story we'll look deeper into next week, but this story calls me to change, to live in an attitude of rejoicing because of the newness of spirit God has put on me. What does it mean to be an ambassador? This moment created your movement to live that out. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. 
If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.